0: There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Our speaker
1: this evening is, is Daniel Garland, who's with us. Uh, has a PhD, he's a Ph.D. candidate in systematic theology at Ave Maria University. Uh, he earned his M.A. in Theology from Franciscan University of Steubenville and a B.A. in Theater from Florida State University. We're, so we're hoping to really be entertained tonight, Daniel. Um, he has taught theology at Ave Maria University and at Christendom College, my alma mater, uh, and a sponsor of the Institute. His articles have p- appeared in Homiletic and Pastoral Review, Maynooth Theological Journal, Haythrope Journal, and the Angelicum. He is also the first English translator of the St. Jerome's Commentary on the Prophet Haggai, which is published by IVP Academics Ancient Christian Texts and Series, which is a fantastic (laughs) series. I got it right here. And he's a a commentator for this wonderful series that's available uh, to everyone. And so we thank Daniel for his good work in that. Uh, Professor Garland lives in Front Royal, Virginia with his wife and five children. So he's doing his part to uh, build up the kingdom of God there in Front Royal, Virginia. Besides that, he is associate director at the Institute and a good friend of mine. So we welcome you, Professor Garland, and uh, look forward to a wonderful evening together.
2: Thank you, Father. Thank you very much. Um, So if you uh, don't have your Bible, you want to make sure you get it. Uh, Tonight's talk... Uh, we're going to be looking at some scripture here uh, for the topic. And the topic of uh, tonight, tonight's lecture comes from the reading we heard at Mass this past Sunday uh, in the story of the raising of Lazarus found in John chapter 11. So let's take a look at John chapter 11. Turn to John chapter 11. So you, you know the story. You just heard it on Sunday. Uh, Lazarus has died. And Jesus is kind of taking his time to get there, right? And in verse uh, 7, and then after he, uh, Jesus said this to his disciples, let us go into Judea again, he said. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews, uh, the Jews were but now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Right? So he goes on and he t- talks to him. And then in verse 16, John eleven sixteen. 16, Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples. Let us also go that we may die with him right now Thomas often gets a bad rap Um, Some some scholars take him to be uh, making a sarcastic remark here, but I don't think that's what's going on I think Thomas really needs it Thomas is ready to die with our Lord, right? Let us go die with him. That's the battle cry for Lent. That's us on Ash Wednesday, right? That's us on Ash Wednesday. Let us go die with Christ. But then two weeks go into Lent, and we're more like Thomas and the Apostles uh, when they leave Christ to go to the cross, right? But as Father said earlier, unless we die with Christ during Lent, we will not rise with him at Easter. So we must be like John the Baptist, who earlier in the Gospel of John, in John 3, John chapter 3, you don't have to turn here, but in John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist, speaking about Jesus, says he must increase and I must decrease. That is the mentality we have to have. And also like St. Paul in Galatians 2.20, Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is the way we have to approach Lent and the whole Christian life. Right? Paul says this because of the reality of baptism. When we are baptized, Christ lives in us. But not just Christ, the other persons of the Trinity as well. The Father and the Holy Spirit. But it's not just baptism that's necessary for the Christian life. There's more to it. So let's take a look at uh, a couple of passages from Scripture which reveal to us what we need for the Christian life. The first is Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8 with me. Romans 8. I love this chapter. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of Sacred Scripture. Romans chapter 8. This is Paul's great letter. Uh, his, he's, he's taking time to write this letter so he can... Uh, Get his thoughts in order. And here in Romans 8, verse 12, he says, So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the Spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may be glorified with him. Right. Listen, provided we suffer with him, Christianity is not a health and wealth gospel. Turn to 1 Peter 4, another passage we want to look at tonight. 1 Peter chapter 4, this is towards the end. See if you can get to it before I do. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same thought. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer by human passions, but by the will of God. Right? These are pretty amazing words. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer by human passions, but by the will of God. What is peter talking about here living by the passions and why did saint paul say that we have to suffer in order to be glorified with christ well to understand what peter and paul are talking about we have to go back to the beginning to creation the creation of man and the original intention that god has for man so man is created as a personal being In the image and likeness of God, this means that man is created with an intellect and a will, a free will. Right. In other words, man is a man has a rational soul. Right. To have an intellect and a will is to have a rational soul, as opposed opposed to uh, an animal soul or a vegetative soul. Right. Man is the only one who has in intellect, and can reason. Now, the rational soul is the spiritual principle in man. It's what makes us in God's image. Man, however, is not just a soul. He's a body and soul composite, right? But so this means that the body and soul are not two separate entities, right, for the human person. The human person is the union of the body and soul. Right? For the human, you can't have one without the other. Now, this is totally contrary to the philosophy of Descartes. Descartes uh, taught that the soul and the body were two separate natures, fundamentally different from one another. For Descartes, the body is mere matter, and the soul, or we should say the mind, is separate from it and controls the matter of the body, kind of like uh, a crane operator controlling the crane, right? For Descartes, the soul, or the mind, is truly the only thing that matters, and the body is a mere accessory, right? We, we probably are familiar with the famous saying of uh, Descartes, Cogito, ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, right? But Descartes is wrong, right? It's not the fact that we think, it's not our thought that constitute our existence, right? The body and the soul are not two separate natures, but rather are intimately united. Take a look at the first uh, quotation on your handout. It's from paragraph, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 365. It says, the unity of soul and body is so profound that one has to consider the soul to be the form of the body. That is, it is because of its spiritual soul that the body made of matter becomes a living human being. Spirit and matter in man are not two natures united, but rather their unions form a single nature. So this union then between the soul and body is so great in man that man is not fully human, without the two united. Even after death, when the soul separates from the body, there's, there's a sense of incompleteness there, which is why, at the end of time of the final judgment, the body will rise up and be united with the soul again. So contrary to Descartes, we could say not cogito ergo sum, but cogitor ergo sum. Tajitor ergo sum, I am thought, therefore I am, right? It's not that we think that makes us exist, it's that we were thought, right? We exist because God has thought us. We're in the mind of God and so we have existence, right? But we could also uh, take a look at this from another angle, which is more pertinent to tonight's discussion. And this comes from the great Thomistic philosopher Charles DeConnick, D-E-K-O-N-I-N-C-K, Charles DeConnick, who said, Sedeo ergo sum, right? Sedeo, I sit, therefore I am, right? I sit, I have a body to sit, therefore I am. Right. For Deconic and for the whole Christian tradition, the body with the soul as its form is so important. It's so important that John Paul II formed a whole theology around it. Right. This is the basis for the theology of the body, that what you do with your body affects your soul. Right. What you do with your body affects your soul. And this is so important. This principle is so important. For tonight's lecture what you do with your body affects your soul now man was created in the Garden of Eden in a state known as original justice it's also known as original harmony so original justice or original harmony this means that Adam was endowed with two gifts Now, we should know that these gifts weren't given to Adam as an individual man. They were given to Adam as the head of the human race and for the human race. So these gifts were to pass on to us because we share in the very nature that Adam shares in. Now, the first of these gifts is sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace. This is the type of grace that elevates man beyond his nature, right? And allows him to share in God's own life and makes him an adopted son of God. This is the very grace that Father Andrew Hoffer spoke about a couple of weeks ago in his lecture on theosis, right? Sanctifying grace is what we need in order to reach our final end, which is the beatific vision. This grace is a pure gift from God. It's not owed to man as part of his nature. However, God in his love has given it to us and he's bestowed it on the first man in the garden. Now, the other gift that Adam is endowed with is what's known as the preternatural. The preternatural gifts. One of these being the harmony of the intellect and the passions, right? So what this means is, is that Adam had perfect control of his passions, which were subject to his intellect and his will at all times. So for example, Adam couldn't get angry, which is a passion. He couldn't get angry unless he willed to get angry. Now with this harmony of intellect, will, And passions in that order the intellect controlling and subduing the will and the passions is how man was originally created this is the intention this harmony in man so we are made to live then by what is highest in us our intellect right once again subduing our will and passions However, as we know, the history of salvation history, Adam and Eve fell. And with that fall came the consequences of original sin. Original sin then disrupts the harmony that man was created in. The intellect becomes darkened. The will becomes weak. And it allows our passions to rule. So sin makes us stupid, weak, and wild. Right? So. St. Paul uh, speaks of this reality in Romans 7. Let's turn to Romans 7. Romans 7, verse 15. Listen to the struggle that, ha- that, that, that results as a consequence of original sin. Romans seven, fifteen. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want. But, what I, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree that the law is good. So that it is no longer I that do it, but the sin which dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but the sin which dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self. But I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin which dwells in my members right? What Paul is talking about here is the struggle with concupiscence, right? Concupiscence, Concupiscence is not sin itself, but rather it's the tendency towards sin which remains as a result of the original sin. Even when we're baptized, the sin, uh, our, our, our original sin is washed away. We're restored to grace, but this tendency to sin still remains with us, right? So even though baptism heals us of this and restores us to this grace, we still have concupiscence, or uh, what's known as theologically the fomes peccati, the fomes peccati, the tinder of sin. Right? It's this this urging, this this desire that leads because of our fallen nature, because of our flesh, we're 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 drawn towards these sinful things, right? So we have to overcome concupiscence, which leads our passions to well up in us and overtake our intellect and our will. But it's hard, right? It's hard. St. Paul says it's hard. How can we possibly do it? Well, look what Paul says next in Romans 7, verse 24 to 25. Who will deliver me from this body of death? wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Right? It's only Christ who delivers us. Concupiscence can only become through the redemptive suffering which is united to our Lord Jesus Christ, which leads us back to Romans 8. Right? We must die to self. So what do we mean by dying to self? It's kind of an odd phrase, right? Well, by dying to self, what we mean primarily is self-denial or mortification. Mortification. This word mortification comes from two Latin words, mortem facere. Mortem facere, which means basically to make or to produce death. Right, to make or produce death. Mortification is putting to death that which gets in the way of us living completely for Christ. St. Paul told us that it is only through suffering with Christ that we will be glorified with Christ. Now, we can wait for this suffering to come upon us and we could meritoriously unite it to the suffering of Christ. Or we could uh, look for opportunities to enter into the suffering, right? Uh, We could take sufferings upon ourselves by mortifying ourselves, that is to die to self, by giving up worldly pleasures. But no, we, we deny ourselves of things that are good, right? Not bad. We shouldn't be doing the bad things in the first place, right? So, there's no merit in refraining from what is bad. We refrain from what is good precisely because it is good. And God is better. Right? God is better. So we deny ourselves of good things because God is who we love and whom we want to have you Him. St. Peter told us that whoever suffers in the flesh has seeds from sin so that they might no longer live by passions, but by the will of God. Right? The next quote on your handout is from Reginald garrigou lagrange who's one of my favorites. He's a great Thomist of the 20th century, and he's also the teacher of Pope St. John Paul II. Here's what he says about this. He says, It is true that our passions, by their nature, are neither good nor evil they are forces to utilize not destroy yet after original sin our nature is inclined to evil and it is this persistent inclination that we must definitely kill mortify in this christian temp- in this christian temperance differs from a purely natural temperance that the world knows From this, it can be deduced that if the dogma of original sin and its consequences forms an essential doctrine of Christianity, then mortification is also an essential part. Right? Mortification is an essential part of perfection in Christ. And we all want to be perfected in Christ, right? Yes, we do. And to do that, we have to stop sinning. Right? We have to master ourselves. We have to stop letting our passions control us and let our reason take charge. Even the smallest sin pulls us away from God. Listen to what Reginald Garagulagrange cautions in the next quote. He says, When venial sin is considered as something insignificant, when it is drunk in like water. How can one be concerned with mortifications or renunciations? If, on the other hand, sin is considered as the greatest of all evils, then mortification, which is basically none other than death to sin, must be an essential part of Christianity. Therefore, the true Christian understands that his first duty is that of doing penance, that is, detesting sin, feeling regret for it, avoiding it, and expiating it. This part of mortification is evidently necessary for all. Moreover, the Christian must practice humility, recognizing that alone, without the help of God, he can do nothing for his own salvation, that all he has from himself is infinitely inferior to, to what other souls have through grace. Hence, he must despise himself, that is, despise all in himself, that is not from God, but which is instead a deformation of the divine work. But once again, even St. Paul struggles, you might say. How then are we to become perfect? St. Peter says through suffering. There is no escaping suffering in the Christian life. Look at what the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 2015 says. The way of perfection passes by the way of the cross. There is no holiness without renunciation and spiritual battle. Spiritual progress entails the ascesis and mortification that gradually lead to living in the peace and joy of the Beatitudes. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, well, this is all well and good, but why suffering? Right? Why do I have to suffer? Can, can there be another way, you know? Or you you might be thinking like a friend of mine who, when I told them that I was becoming Catholic, said, uh, "That's all. That's all good, but uh, you know, just don't and don't do that masochistic suffering stuff that Catholics do, right? Stay away from that, right? So why is it then? Why is it suffering, in particular, that leads us to holiness? And mastery of self. Well, turn to 1st Corinthians 9. Uh, St. Paul gives us a clue here by way of comparison. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 to 27. St. Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable prize. But we an imperishable. Well, I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I pommel my body and subdue it, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Right. Now, St. Paul, isn't just uh, talking about what's necessary for a preacher. He's talking about what is necessary for all of us as Christians. So who here has played sports, right? We, we, We understand this concept. If we've played sports, we've had to practice, right? And we're sore the next day, right? And the soreness though is a good. It's good because we know even though our muscles are sore, we're conditioning our muscles to play better, right? When I was younger, I did martial arts and we had to do all kinds of stances and everything for such a long time that my legs, they would burn, right? And and my, my legs the next day would ache so bad I could barely walk. But I knew that the pain I felt was good because I was getting stronger. I would be a better martial artist because of it, right? And we could go back to St. Paul's example, like boxers conditioning themselves for a fight. We must condition ourselves for spiritual combat, right? And we do this precisely by mortification. Now, sure, there's suffering involved, right? And we should do this, however, the suffering, we should take it on joyfully because we know That if we do so, if we joyfully accept our suffering and we offer it to Christ, then we will grow in the spiritual life, right? And it's not a masochism, it's mastery. Now, if the suffering that comes from mortification was an end in itself, if that's all it was, then yeah, it would be masochism but it's not. Mortification is a means to an end, right? Remember, remember the phrase by deconic sedeo ergo sum, I sit, therefore I am, right? There's an intrinsic connection between the body and the soul, and by suffering in the flesh, we strengthen our soul, right? And in strengthening our soul, We are led to life in Christ. Now, there's another theological reason why we mortify ourselves uh, by self-denial. Go back to the Garden of Eden again, back to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were commanded to to do a work of abstinence, right? To refrain, to abstain from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What happened? They didn't abstain, they partook of it, right? They didn't deny themselves. If we want to succeed where Adam failed, we have to abstain. We have to deny ourselves, mortify ourselves of the pleasures of this world. This is why the church has given us this great and wonderful season of Lent, right? As Christ entered into battle, so must we also. Look at the next uh, paragraph, right? Before we get to there, we, we should note that the first Adam is in a garden and he fails. The second Adam, Christ, is in a desert doing battle and he succeeds. And we, by golly, we are in a desert. Look at the world around us right? The the bombing that happened a couple of days ago in St. Petersburg. We're surely in a desert. We have to prepare for battle. Look what the Catechism says in paragraph 540. Jesus's temptation reveals the way in which the Son of God is Messiah, contrary to the way Satan proposes to him and the way men wish to attribute to him. This is why Christ vanquished the tempter For us, for we have not a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tested as we are, yet without sinning. By the solemn 40 days of Lent, the church unites herself each year to the mystery of Jesus in the desert. So Lent then comes out of Christ's 40 days of denial in the desert. Right and we can go back to the old testament too Moses fasted for 40 days on mount Sinai and talked with God Elijah fasted for 40 days right and then we have the Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years right where Israel failed Christ succeeded right so we should deny ourselves so as to grow in Christ throughout the whole year yes but especially here in the time of Lent Right, We could say that Lent is our training ground for the battle. And it's not too late to start training. Right, If your Lent so far hasn't been uh, so penitential, right, if you, you wanted to do all these disciplines and mortifications, but you've gotten off track, it's not too late to start again. It's not too late to start conditioning ourselves so that we are ready for Easter and the resurrection of our Lord. In his constitution, non ambiguous this is the next quote in your handout, this is all the way back in 1741, uh, this constitution expressed dismay at how easily dispensations from fastings were being handed out back then. Uh, and this is from Pope Benedict XIV. He says, with the Lenten fast, almost a mark of our militia, right? We are the church militant and the fast is the mark of our militia. We are distinguished from the enemies of the church. We turn away from the lightning of divine vengeance. And with the help of God, we are protected in the course of of the days from the prince of darkness. Your failure to comply results in a not insignificant offense to the glory of God, a non-negligible shame to the Catholic religion, and a sure danger to the faithful. It is certain indeed that the origin of the plight of the peoples, the woes of the morals, public and private, is not found elsewhere. Listen to that again. Because people aren't taking the Lenten fast seriously, Pope Benedict XIV says, It is indeed the origin of the plight of the peoples, the woes of the morals, public and private, we are in a battle. And as St. Paul says in Ephesians 6:12, as he says in Ephesians 6:12, we are in a battle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the world rulers, of this present darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, we're in a battle against fallen angels, demons who so desperately want to drag us under, lead us into sin so that we can be drugged into hell with them. So we have to be prepared for this battle. In Genesis 4, God tells Cain that sin is like a beast and he must master it. Look at what St. Peter says. He says something similar to this. 1 Peter 5. Turn with me to 1 Peter 5. Verses 8 and 10. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 10. Peter, our first pope, says, Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. Right? We have to be watchful. We have to rid ourselves of attachment to this world so it's the win in the battle. Right? This world isn't all there is. As St. Therese of Lisieux says, this world is a ship. And we're on a voyage to our destination, which is heaven. Or we could go back to St. Paul in Hebrews 12. We have here no lasting city. Ours is the Jerusalem above. So in order to get to that, to get that prize, we have to persevere, as St. Paul says. We have to run the race so as to win. We have to pummel our body. We have to condition ourselves, right, through mortification. Now, the mortifications we do, they don't have to be extravagant and extreme to be effective, right? We don't have to wear a hair shirt like St. Thomas More. Uh, you could, but you don't have to, right? There are other ways. For example, for Saint Therese of Lisieux, the Little Flower, in her little way, it was these small acts of self-denial that helped her to be perfected in Christ. Look at the next quote from her. This is from her autobiography, *The Story of the Soul*, which I highly recommend. It, it's, it's been my go-to reading for Lent. She says, "When I suffer much." When things that are painful or disagreeable befall me, instead of assuming an air of sadness, I respond with a smile. At first, I was not always successful, but now it is a habit which I am very happy to acquire. Right? Another time, she tells of being annoyed by a certain nun in her convent, Right, and she made a devoted effort to befriend her. Right? And instead of letting whatever it was annoy her, she was nice to her and showed her kindness right? and she offered up that small suffering for love of Christ. Right? Our mortification should be uh, to paraphrase Saint Jose Maria Escriva extraordinarily ordinary right I love that. They should be extraordinarily ordinary. One such mortification that he counseled was called the heroic minute, right? The heroic minute. When the alarm goes off in the morning or when you, whenever it is you wake up, as soon as you wake up, get up right away, right? Within that first minute. Listen to what he says. This is from his uh, short little work, The Way. He says, the heroic minute, it is the time fixed for getting up. Without hesitation, a supernatural reflection and up. The heroic minute, here you have a mortification that strengthens your will and does no harm to your body. Right? It's so simple, right? And yet, it's an exercise of our reason over our passions. When we wake up, at least me, when I wake up in the morning, I, you know, I have this tendency, my passion say, oh, just, you know, hit the snooze alarm, five more minutes, right? And then, uh, you know, five minutes goes off. My wife comes and said, all right, it's, it's been five minutes. Oh, just three more minutes, just three more minutes. Comes back and through, oh, two more minutes. Two more. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like Moses, or uh, not Moses, Abraham, like looking over Sodom and Gomorrah and pleading for, you know, trying to get down, this, you know, use up all that time for sleep, right? But to do the heroic minute. It's an act of love for God right at the beginning of the day. If you can conquer yourself in that first minute, imagine how great your day will be, right? Because you know, you got it. You're up. You're good. And that it, it's kind of like a spiral effect, right? Whereas, you know, uh, if, if, you, if you don't conquer yourself right at the beginning of your day, you know, it's, it's hard to get on track. Now, full disclosure, as I said, I don't have this figured out, right? But each day I try, I I did today. Tomorrow, I probably won't, right? But each day, you try anew, right? The saints are saints, not because they were perfect, it's because they never stopped perfecting themselves, right? If you went up to a saint and said, oh, you're you're a saint, As St. Therese said, when St. Therese was on her deathbed, she's dying. She told her sister, don't tell people I'm a saint because then they won't pray for me and I won't get to heaven. Saints know they're sinners, but they never stop trying to be perfect as our heavenly father is perfect. So if you fail, start again, right? If I wake up tomorrow morning and the heroic minute just, you know, my, my passion, my flesh is pulling on me, all right, make a resolution the next night that in the morning I'm going to get up. When that alarm goes off, I'm going to turn it off and I'm going to get up and I'm ready for the day. That is what we need. We have to persevere and never stop inching forward. And it's inching, right? we don't, in the spiritual life, it's not leaps and bounds. Sometimes it's inching here, and then we fall way back, and then we inch a little bit more, right? But we have to keep persevering. When we think that we we are at a good level in spiritual life, we've lost the game. We've fallen back, right? So we have to keep moving on. Now, There are other practical mortifications that we could do. They're, they're, They're easy. They're ordinary. Right? And nobody has to know we're doing them. It's not about, right, showing off to other people. Right? It's about doing it for love of God. Right? So some examples. Not having salad dressing on your salad. It may seem so easy, but, I mean, when you're eating a bland salad, If you love salad dressing, right, a nice vinaigrette or, you know, honey mustard to go without, it's mortification, right? Not putting condiments on your hot dog or your hamburger or sandwich, right? Having one cup of coffee instead of two, right? Not eating in between meals, no snacking, right? Calling your mother-in-law just to say hi. My goodness, that's a mortification, right? you getting great merit for that one. My mother-in-law is not watching, so it's that. Uh, you, can, you can stand up to work instead of sitting down, right? Taking cold showers, right? That will uh, give you some resolve there. Uh, walk to places instead of driving. Now, that one isn't always practical, but when it is, do it, right? Instead of saying, oh, well, you know, I'm going down the street to visit a neighbor, instead of getting in the car, walk, right? And, and and we should do it consciously, right, with our intellect, saying, I'm doing this for love of you, Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, no matter what mortifications we take on, one thing we should always do, right? Whether it's a small one or or it's it's a great one, like a hair shirt, like St. Thomas More, we should always consult our spiritual director. Right? We don't want to, uh, usually a spiritual director knows us more than we know ourselves. And so we don't want to take on something that's going to be detrimental to our health or something like that, right? So we want to make sure uh, it's within the bounds of what we can handle, right? So the mortification is meant to make us holy, not drag us away, right? Uh, and we should also uh, remember that whatever mortifications we choose, Saint Josemaria Escrivá says this, right? He says, uh, "Your mortifications should not mortify others, right? So if giving up coffee is gonna make everybody else around you crazy because you're crazy, don't do it. Find a mortification that is good for you and that doesn't affect others, right? And embrace your mortifications with joy, right? That's the key there. Do it for love." right? Charity. If we're not doing it for charity, for love of God, our mortifications are useless, right? So we should embrace it. We should have joy in doing it, even if it causes us suffering, like St. Therese, right? When you suffer, smile. Don't let people know you're gloomy. Be joyful. As St. Teresa of Avila says, oh Lord, save us from sour-faced saints, right? We should be happy. And there's great joy in the Christian life. Our Savior has died for us. How could we not be happy? But there's more to it. It's not just mortification that we want to do. If we're to win the battle against our passions and against sin, we need to pray as well. Right? Look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church. The next quote, paragraph 2849. This is from the section on the Lord's Prayer, uh, Prayer, the petition, Lead Us Not Into Temptation. And it says, Such a battle and such a victory become possible only through prayer. It is by his prayer that Jesus vanquishes the tempter, both at the onset of his public mission and in the ultimate struggle of his agony. In this petition to our Heavenly Father, Christ unites us to his battle and his agony. He urges us to vigilance of the heart in communion with his own. Vigilance is custody of the heart. And Jesus prayed for us to the Father, keep them in your name. The Holy Spirit constantly seeks to awaken us to keep watch. Finally, this petition takes on, takes on all its dramatic meaning in relation to the last temptation of our earthly battle. It asks for final perseverance. Lo, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is he who is awake. Right? We don't know when the end of our life is going to be. So we need to take on this mortification now. Don't wait until tomorrow to start. Don't wait for a week from now. Do it tonight. Do it now. Right? Hopefully uh, this lecture is a mortification for you. But if it is, right, offer it up. Right? Make it meritorious so we see that there's a deep connection between prayer and fasting right fasting which is a type of mortification in mark 9:29 jesus tells the disciples that there are some demons that can only be cast out with prayer and fasting together right that's how important these two go together and saint jose maria escriva again cautioned this is the, the other quote on your handout. Unless you mortify yourself, you'll never be a prayerful soul. Unless you mortify yourself, you'll never be a prayerful soul. Why is this? Right? Because when we take up our cross in imitation of Christ, then we will be better able to communicate with him in prayer. Think about it. If we don't enter into Christ's own suffering, How can we hope to be united with him in prayer? As Christ prayed to the Father and suffered on the cross, we suffer through our mortifications and we pray, we combine these, prayer and mortification. That is the path, the holiness. In conclusion, let us return back to where we began. Back to John 11. Turn back to John 11, verse 33. So we go on in the story a little bit more. Jesus is now in Bethany, where Lazarus has died, right? John 11, verse 33, when Jesus saw her, uh, Mary, weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved and spared in trouble, right? He was deeply moved and spared in spirit and trouble, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Right? St. Thomas Aquinas commenting on this, this is the last quote in your handout. Since the evangelist infers that some sympathize with Christ's affection when he says, So the Jews said, after Christ showed his affections by his words and tears. See how we loved him. For love is especially manifested when people are afflicted. A brother is born for adversity, Proverbs seventeen seventeen. As for the mystical sense, we understand by this that God loves us even when we are sinners. For if he did not love us, he would not have said, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ doesn't just weep for Lazarus. As a lover of mankind, Christ weeps for all of us who are dead in sin. But Christ doesn't just weep for us. He goes to the cross and he dies for us. Right? So come, let us die with him in these remaining days of Lent. Let us die with Christ. Let us mortify ourselves so that we may live for Christ in Easter and beyond. Thank you.
3: Um, so, the first question that I'm seeing here is from uh, an anonymous viewer asking Can you please talk about spiritual mortification, denial, taking up your cross, and how it brings us closer to Christ instead of acts that seem to only mortify for the sake of mortification? Um, she kind of says, Too, I'm confused, uh, struggling perfectionist, and trying to rest in God's grace instead of self effort. So, I know that's kind of a question, but do you mind addressing that?
2: Sure, yeah. As I, as I said, right the mortification is the means to the end we don't ever want to uh mortify ourselves just for mortification's sake we don't want to uh make ourselves have pain just for that right every act of mortification every denial of our flesh of our bodily passions right it is bodily and spirit uh, uh, intellectual right there's there's two types of mortification in the tradition there's the interior mortification and the exterior mortification right whatever we do whatever way we take on the mortifier self it's to grow closer to christ right so whatever suffering we have we should joyfully offer it up right as i said suffering could come to us or we could take it upon ourselves no matter which way it comes right it's, it, you know, it's okay to feel pain. It's okay to say this hurts, right? Say if we have some kind of disease, you know, uh, like St. Therese dying of, uh, what was it, tuberculosis, right? She suffered, but she, she, she took that suffering and she united it to the cross of Christ. She, she took on the suffering because she knew this suffering, each suffering that we do, helps us to control our passions, to help us stop sinning, right? Sin comes from our passions urging us on, concupiscence. And so when we get the right ordering of intellect, will, and passion, right, when we subdue our passions through mortification, right, then we can live by what is highest in us, what God made us to live by, right? And then we can use that to live for Christ.
0: I hope that helps.
3: Professor, may
0: I add something to that from a perfectionist standpoint? Yes, <laughs> because that was a really good answer. But as a perfectionist, it can be self-mortifying to let things go imperfectly. Sure, done. and so that can be a, a way that we can mortify ourselves during Lent, especially by letting go.
2: Yeah, that, you know that's <laughs> that- huge. that's a huge one, right? If if you know you you walk by a picture and it's crooked. And every urge, and he wants to straighten it out, offer it up, and move on, right? That's great, yeah.
3: Um, We're getting another question coming in from Lisa asking, can you tell me the differences in practice uh, between the Roman and Orthodox Catholic fasting slash abstinent rules, and how can a Roman Catholic use, use both practices?
2: Well, um, <laughs> I'm not orthodox. I don't know. Well, I, I know. You know. I guess uh, there's Eastern Catholic practices. Father Hezekiah could probably uh, better answer this. But I would say um, so. For us, uh, Latin right, right? There's Lent is kind of Lent is kind of easy, right? We we abstain from meat on Fridays, which we, if we're following the traditional practice, we should do all year round, right? So what's different? Um, we, we fast on Ash Wednesday and we fast on Good Friday. Um, now, Eastern Catholics, they have the great fast, right? And so they give up meat, dairy, uh, uh, wine, vinegar, right? All this, all this stuff throughout the whole time, right? And so now, now that is that the, the great fast is the monastic ideal. It's, it's going to be different for each person. Right? And so what you seem fit, what you're able to do, uh, you can combine them. So, for example, you could say, all right, I'm Latin, right? Uh, but I want to I wanna breathe with both lungs, as John Paul II said. Right? So I want to I, I wanna take upon myself some of the Eastern Catholic uh, practices for Lent. Well, fast on Wednesday and Friday. Right? Or, or don't just abstain. Fast on those two days. Right, or or you could do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um, right, you could you could fast instead of just abstaining from meat. Fast during those days. Right, there's there's uh, many other examples. Um, you know, give up dairy. Right, uh, not having eggs and cheese. My for someone who loves cheese, that's hard. Right, uh, you know, I go to the fridge, and I'm I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do what. Uh, is is the question there do you unite both East and West? I go to the fridge to get cheese and I'm like nope, Not gonna do it. Not gonna do it right. I, I love having eggs go to get a hard-boiled egg Not gonna do it right and so it's 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 things like that right we can blend them both um, So hopefully that helps
3: you're getting on easy tonight because that was our last question. Um, there was uh, one. Oh, actually, you know what? We just got one more in, so let's go ahead and do it. It's a little bit long, so I'll try and uh, abbreviate it. It's from Tom coming in. I believe you mentioned in the beginning of your talk that merit is not gained by avoiding sin, but rather by avoiding that which is essentially good in itself. Um, he said, "Forgive me. But it's not mer- Is not merit also gained by avoiding any sin to which one may be attached or weak?"
2: Sure, sure, yes. Um, so obviously, we want to avoid all sin, and it's meritorious, right? If we uh, if we have some temptation that we're drawn to, uh, and and we avoid, right? It's it's meritorious to avoid that. But my my point was that right. If we're going to take on mortifications, now we should, if, if there's a certain sin, if there's a certain thing that is, is big, eh, we want to root that out first. So whatever it takes to root that out, yeah, by all means, it's meritorious. But if we're looking to enter into, say for for the Lenten season, uh, for some disip, penitential discipline, right, uh, most people give up, All right, a lot of people give up smoking for Lent. Right. Well, I don't want to get into debates here, right, it's whether smoking is bad for you or not, right? So for the sake of argument, let's say it is, right? That's something you should give up in the first place, right? So you want for a meritorious penitential uh, practice, a penitential mortification, uh, or a meritorious mortification, give up something that's good. Chocolate is a good. I love chocolate. It's very good. Thanks be to God that he created chocolate, right? Giving that up. You give it up because it's good. You give up wine, right? Thanks be to God for creating wine. But you give it up because it's good and God is better, right? So that's where I was going with that. But yes, uh, if something is, uh, if you have some temptation, then by all means, you want to work on that. That's what you want to root out first. Right? Uh, the spiritual masters say, start with what is your greatest battle. Start from there, right So yeah.
3: Um, we had another question come in from Barbara asking, how would you explain it to teenagers? <laughs> Good luck. No, no, no. Um, right So
2: I think right find, find what teenagers are interested in. St. Paul talks about sports, the sports analogy, right It, it can be very helpful if, if you're talking to a teenager. All right, especially if they play sports, they know. They know that, hey, if I want to be good, I've got to practice. And it's going to be sore. I'm going to hurt. I'm going to suffer, right? But you'll be better. If you suffer through that practice, right, you go to, or, or you go to practice and you don't want to. There's times I was playing baseball growing up. I was like, oh, I don't really want to go to practice today. But I was made to go, and, and I'm glad I did because I got better. And so mortifications, we can kind of think of mortifications as practice, right? It's, we're, we're, we're athletes, if we want to use the analogy of St. Paul, we're athletes in the spiritual life. And if we want to win, if we want to gain that imperishable wreath, right, then we've, we've got to go through practice. We've got to mortify ourselves. It's the same, it's the same concept. Good question, yeah.
3: Any parting thoughts for us, Daniel?
2: Uh, yeah. Uh, so somebody said, uh, I think somebody was asking, one will slide in the question at the end, um, you know, is uh, we abstain from meat on Fridays during Lent. Would you recommend a fast on Fridays as a more spiritual mortification? Sure, yes. Talk to your spiritual director first. But yeah, by all means, if it's going to
0: help you grow in the spiritual life, do it. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture.